inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Ride On with Julie Goodnight. I appreciate you listening. You know, I've been traveling a lot lately, and every time I go to horse expos and clinics, I get some great comments on the podcast, and I really appreciate that. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an upcoming episode. And please help me out by going to iTunes or Google Play and give me a five-star review. That would mean a lot to me. I'd like to thank Smooth Stride Riding Jeans for sponsoring this podcast and for keeping it free to listeners. You know, Smooth Stride Riding Jeans are my favorite riding jeans. I wear them everywhere I go. I practically live in them at home. And before we get started on today's topic, it's time for a Stride by Stride with my friend Desiree from Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Well, Des, i got to tell you that uh, one of the reasons that I really love the cut of the jean is because it comes in adequate length for riding. And so I learned a long time ago, as most horse trainers, um, have Western horse trainers have learned to do, we like our jeans really long because we know that once you sit on a horse, they get quite a bit shorter than when you're walking down the street. So I love it that your uh, jeans not only come in all those different sizes, but you can also order three different lengths depending on how you're built because although I'm only 5'4", I have a really long inseam for someone my height. And another person could be 5'4", and have a much shorter inseam than me. Um, but so as far as what I can see, the three links that you offer uh, really uh, cover every size rider. Yep. They, uh, the 31-inch, 33-inch, and 36-inch, uh, those three choices are working very well for us. And, yeah, the, you know, the angles, when you sit in the tack with the bend of the knee and the bend of the hips and all that, it does shorten them up. So, uh I am very happy that we offer a 36-inch length because not only does it help to keep the pant down, even though the design, again, in the lower leg, um, it the, the pattern itself uh, encourages the no riding up of the jean, but um, I'm really happy that, that you're happy with the length for sure. Well, one thing I've noticed about that lower leg is that uh, even if I hop up on an English horse, um, with the smooth stride riding jean on, I don't really have to stop and put on half shafts because the uh, the lower leg seems to stay down and smooth. Um, so uh, it's comfortable for all types of saddles. Another thing that I just thought of when you guys were talking with um, an instructor that if she ever forgot her half half shafts, she would. Oh, yeah, polo ruffs. We've done that a lot, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'll put them under my jeans, too. Yeah, I I used to uh, ride, when I galloped racehorses, I would put one of those, um, those tight elastic, um, kind of like a a knee guard or a leg guard, that I would put those on underneath Mm -hmm. my jeans to protect my lower leg, and I would literally wear those things out and have to get new ones. So we've all been there, huh? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we've got the uh, 
the microsuede with the extended knee patch jeans, it, that works like a built-in half chap. Um, and so especially for English riders, you know, me being an English rider, um, because of the stirrup leathers, they're different from Western stirrup leathers. The uh, extended knee patch really add protection to the inside of your calf bicep so you're not irritated by the uh, English stirrup leathers. And so and with the full seat, that's the same thing. So, again, it uh, eliminates another piece of equipment that you don't have to put on and off, which is a possible half chap. You know, you, you can two of the three styles have the basically built-in leg protection right there. So for endurance riders, they're, it's wonderful. Or for ladies who uh, spend a lot of hours out trail riding, you know, so thank you. Yeah. Here we are. And uh, the subject is the science of horse training and horsemanship. I'm going to start off with my favorite things about the science of horse training and um, right off the bat, what comes to my mind is is to explain to people the difference between positive and negative reinforcement. And with, with the training of horses, almost everything that we do, or the most amount of training that we do with horses, is negative reinforcement. And it is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood terms out there, because most people that uh, haven't done a lot of studying of this stuff if you say I use negative reinforcement they think it's punishment and um, so negative reinforcement has actually nothing to do with punishment a negative reinforcer to a horse is a reward and so what a negative reinforcer is is that it refers to the taking away of pressure so in other words with negative reinforcement and this is pretty much the scientific definition of it, you uh, apply an aversive stimulus and you wait for the animal to give the correct response and then you release the stimulus. It is the release of pressure, it is upon the release of pressure that the horse learns what the response you wanted was. So let me just give you an example that will make that make sense. So what do I want to think about? Um, maybe, um, well, I was just giving somebody an example a minute ago about backing it. Let's say I'm training a horse to back up on my command, on my cue from the ground. My cue is going to be, uh, all of the cues that I would teach a horse, and this is what we work on in clinics, involve always, when I'm doing groundwork, always involve a hand signal first. Because horses, as it turns out, are very easily trained to hand signals. Because how do horses communicate with each other? Body language and gestures. A little bit of audible communication, but most of it's body language and gestures. Horses make a lot of gestures. And yes, some of them you don't want to know what they mean. Um, and... It, and that's the equine flip-off, by the way, I call it, which is the head toss, which is when a horse does his nose, sometimes shakes his head, but uh, the head toss as a defiant gesture is a circular motion of the nose, and the mane usually does that. But that's a defiant gesture of the horse, sort of similar to the old uh, three-finger sandwich uh, gesture of humans in traffic. Um, but anyway, so... 
horses communicate primarily with gestures and postures, so they're very attuned to that if you should use that in your handling and training, which I always do. So my finished cue or my finished uh, signal to this horse that I want him to back up is going to be just a shake of my finger from side to side. Well, he, if I do that right now, he might look at it. A super sensitive horse might kind of do that. Um, but I'm probably going to need a little more pressure than that to really make him um, think about what the right answer is. So what I do is with the rope halter and training lead with a very loose lead, now I'm holding the rope in my hand and I point my finger at him and I just waggle my finger back and forth. But now the rope's going like this. So the rope halter's going like this. So there's your aversive stimulus. And immediately, and, and it does, I, my goal is to never use any more pressure than that because that's the light cue I want to train him to. And um, immediately when you apply an aversive stimulus, the horse will start guessing, how do I get out of this stimulus? I don't like this. How do I get out of it? And he just starts guessing. As we talked about yesterday, horses are not good problem solvers. Um, so he might uh, at first throw his head up in the air, uh, but with his feet planted, and I just keep doing this. And then he might turn his head to the side to see if I'll stop doing this. And I know I'm going to keep doing this. Eventually, he's going to guess back and I'm going to see the center of his chest just start to move back. I don't care at this moment. I don't care at all what his feet do because I'm looking all at the middle of his chest. And as soon as I see the middle of the chest draw back, release the cue. Learning just occurred. He now knows the direction I want him to go is backwards. And so the next time I reach up and pick that rope and do this, he's going to immediately suck his chest back. And then he'll take a step because... He can only suck his chest back for so long without actually taking a step. So that is, so we apply an aversive stimulus. This is the part that, acute, uh, that confuses people because it doesn't have to be harsh, mean, painful pressure. If you just look at a horse, you're putting pressure on him, right? And then if I start gesturing to him, I'm putting even more pressure on him. So it does not, aversive stimulus does not have to be painful stimulus. It just doesn't. They're not necessarily related in any way. But horses are highly, highly sensitive animals. And what that means is they feel pressure, all kinds of pressure, very, very keenly. And that has to do with them being prey animals. Um, and that has to do with them being flight animals, right? So those things it, go together. So a flight animal has to be very, very sensitive to his environment. So because horses are the most sensitive domesticated animal, they are also the most easily desensitized. And that's why we can use them in, you know, police work. And uh, gosh, they're starting to train horses more for going to Afghanistan and stuff to crawl up hills that the, you know, the machines can't go on. And so um, horses can be desensitized to almost any stimulus. 
fast. Horses desensitize fast when the technique is done correctly. If horse is not desensitizing fast to a stimulus, uh, so, so you're doing something wrong because they're extremely fast learners. And this all has to do with flight response, prey animal, um, and the way that they feel pressure. So remember that we're not only talking about physical pressure, but we're talking about mental pressure. And I use the example, the other, how many of you guys keep your horses at home? Most of you. Um, yeah, well, even, even if at a boarding barn this, this would exist, you might notice it more at home, but every gate that you open makes a sound. I mean, I don't know of any horse gates because we all got chains and snaps around everything. And um, so there's a sound, the hinge squeals or whatever. Um, every horse knows the sound of every gate in that pen. And um, they've, they've learned, to, they've, you know, they hear it every time they go through or whatever. Um, so, um, you know, when we get these horses that learn how to get out of something, they're, they're not solving a, a crazy problem, puzzle, Rubik's Cube. What they're doing is going up to that gate and fiddling with it until they hear the sound that they know it normally makes. And then they know they're on the right track, so they keep moving it until they hear that sound. You know, So uh, horses learn really, really fast. And, um, and they feel pressure really, really keenly. So, uh, oh, what I was going to say about the coming through the gates. So if you live at home and your, your horses know the sound of all the gates, and as soon as you're, uh, particularly if it's feed time, as soon as he hears that gate open, what does he do? You know, and, or he knows your routine or whatever. So, um, so anyway, so horses are very fast learning animals. Um, that also has to do with being prey animals and being highly sensitive animals. If they didn't learn very, very fast, um, they would be in a constant state of flight. They'd be in a constant state of panic. If they didn't desensitize really fast, um, they would be in a constant state of flight. And so um, it's this really weird juxtaposition of, of how they are, but, but that's the way it is. So when a horse, and this is an important lesson for us, when a horse is not learning something fast, it's because we're doing it wrong. He doesn't, we're, we're confusing him, not teaching him. And usually what's happening is the release is being given at the wrong moment because what here, this isn't a scientific basis of training. This is a horse trainer's basis of training. But whatever your horse is doing at the moment you release the pressure, whether that's the pressure of the reins, the pressure of your legs, the, you know, the mental pressure of you getting after them, or whatever your horse is doing at the moment you release him is what you just trained him to do. And he's such a fast learner that it's really easy to train him the wrong thing. So the difference between a half a second or a second of when that release came could be the difference of when the horse was lowering his head and raising his head. Um, so there's another good example. Everybody, not everybody, everybody with a high-headed horse wants to know how to get it down low. And then as soon as you get it down low, they want to know how to get it back up there. <laughs> But, um, you know, I can train any horse to put his head down pretty fast. Um, if he's been messed up already, 
meaning somebody's done it poorly, and so every every contact means raise your head. It's going to take me a little bit longer, but I can still get it done pretty fast. But that split-second difference in when that release comes, the reason why I can get it done fast is because at, within less than a half a second of when the pole starts moving down, he would have only moved it probably an eighth of an inch. I'm playing out rain to him. And so that, that split-second timing allows you to teach horses really fast. Um, so whenever horses aren't learning fast, you're either not communicating it into a way, in a way they can understand or um, that timing of that release is off just enough that you're releasing on the wrong thing. I was using, uh, who was I talking, were any of you who I was talking to a minute ago about backing your horse up over in my booth? Okay, I was just having this conversation, but anyway, on that example I was just giving you about teaching the horse to back off a hand signal, um, let's say I've been at it for a few minutes, and you know how a lot of people, in every clinic I do, there are people that have horses that are just drawing a mental blank on backing up, they just can't get it to save their life, either on the ground or in the saddle, and unfortunately, usually that's already known to be an issue. They've already tried a lot and failed. So in that trying a lot to teach this horse to back up and, and failing in that, that means by definition that you have released the horse for not backing up, right? Do you understand what I mean by that? So the more you've attempted something and failed at it, the, the more you've actually trained the horse that the failure is the correct response. So whatever you are doing at the moment you release the pressure, physical pressure, mental pressure, doesn't matter, um, that's what you just train that horse to do. So um, negative, getting back to negative reinforcement then, because of the how highly sensitive horses are, um, that's why negative reinforcement works so well on them. It works better than any other form of pressure because, you know, you can get a, a, a more sensitive horse. I'm not saying every horse is this way, but a more sensitive horse. I always joke about the Arabs because I always said, you know, back in the day, we're getting away from this now, fortunately, but every expo you went to, there was a guy in a cowboy hat wanting to do a round pin demonstration. You remember that? It was just all about the round pin. And I remember it well because I always asked to do round pin demonstrations because I happened to think I could do it better than most of them just chase a horse around the round pin and don't explain what they're doing. And they maybe even couldn't explain what they were doing. They just say, and then I do this, you know, and then I do this. Um, but the producers always said to me, Julie, I don't need another round pinner. I got a dozen of those. I need somebody that can teach people to ride. And all I wanted to do was horse training and behavior presentation. They'd be like, I need somebody to teach people to ride, which I happen to do well, too. So that's, that's how I'm more known for teaching people to ride, but I like horse training better. Um, but anyway, uh, with Arabs, I used to say, okay, let's see, let's see you do a round pin demonstration with a purebred Arab. That is a totally different story. You know, these stock horses, you chase them around for about five minutes, and they're, <gasps> and they're like, oh, man, I'll do anything. I'll lay down and roll over. You just don't make me go around again. 
in the air uh, before you even step in the round pan. He's going round, round, round. And then you step in, and he's still going, looking outside, going round, round. He doesn't even know you're there. <laughs> and um, But Arabs are, are can be a big challenge in the round pen because their level of sensitivity is so high. And the round pen is a boiling plate. It's it's a pressure place. It's a, it's a place of extreme pressure to a horse. That's why they often try to scramble out of them. A, a raw horse, you know, you can uh, drive them over the fence real easy. Um, but the uh, Arab, when the, the first thing the first thing to, in the round pen to me is driving the horse away from you. Then you start controlling directions. Then you start controlling speed. With Arabs, when you get to the point where you're controlling their speed, here's how it goes. You look at them, they speed up. You look away, they slow down. You look at them, they speed up. You look away, they slow down. And to come down to that level of sensitivity is hard. When horses are overreacting to cues, it's usually because of that. You can't, you're not coming down to the horse's level of sensitivity. When horses are resentful over cues, you know, they sass about it or they shake their head or they put, flick their ears back or swish their tail, all of which are signs of irritation. Um, often, it's, here's another thing we do in clinics is uh, I help you identify these things so that you can fix them. But almost always that horse is being overcued. He's like, look, lady, when I didn't know how to do this, I got it. You had to set me up and really poke that spur in me, but I'm doing it now. Stop poking me. So horses develop resentment or whatever over cues. So as that horse learns the cue and starts responding, that cue should be less and less and less and less. Um, but again, getting back to negative reinforcement, the reason why we use it, almost all of the training we do with horses is negative reinforcement because of how keenly they feel pressure. They immediately start looking for a way out of the pressure. And as soon as they begin to, to give the right response, underline begin, as soon as they begin to give the right response, so that horse I'm backing up just sucks his chest back, that is when the release comes because that is the moment of optimal learning. If, if he sucks his chest back and nothing happens, nothing happens, no release comes, he might well do something, do something else next. He's not just doing it and then waiting for you to give the release. He's exploring what is going to give him the release. So let's talk about the timing. Um, the timing of the re there's two factors involved in the release of pressure um, that are going to make learning fast. Um, the first is timing, and timing uh, is probably the most important. So research uh, that was actually done at CSU tells us that um, you you not, everybody already knows that you have about a three hundred three second window of opportunity to release a horse in order for him to associate the release with what he did. It has to occur within three seconds, but here's what I'm here to tell you. The sooner in that three seconds the release occurs, the faster the horse learns. And at CSU, the research they did was to find the optimal time 
or the release or the correction or any kind of reward. In order for the horse to associate his response or his action with the release or the reward or the correction, um, the sooner in the three seconds, the faster. And the optimal time frame is one half of a second, one half of one second. Now, that does seem like an impossible amount of time. It's not as fast as you think it is. So if I was, uh, let's say I was jogging, just a nice, easy jog. These are, this is about a half a second each step. So this is about a half a second. So if uh, your horse bites you and then you spank him, I don't care where you hit him. Uh, he is going to associate that spanking with his biting. If that spanking came within a half a second, he 100% certainly knows it was his biting that caused you to spank him. Um, asking the horse to lower his head or come into a frame or, or bend his ribs or, or take a step of a side pass. You apply that pressure and he starts going, oh, she's asking something, what is it? Bends the ribs, release the pressure, half a second, one time it takes. First got it. But here's where the human problem occurs. We are so greedy that we ask a horse to do something, and he does it. And what do we want him to do? Keep doing it. Oh, more. Okay, yeah, you got that. Let's do it more. Um, so when that release did not come, now the horse starts thinking, well, that must not have been the right response. So, and you, I'm sure you all can think of numerous experiences with your ho own horses and myself included. I'm not, I, I'm not saying I never make these mistakes. I make them on a daily basis. But, uh, if I keep asking and, and he, and the, the first couple times he does it, let's say I'm asking him a leg yield and he moves and then, but I'm not acknowledging that I'm not praising it. I'm not releasing the pressure and rewarding him. Pretty soon he starts fighting me. And probably some of you can think of times when you've just, just for a second, it was good. And then immediately switched to fighting you or leaning into you or bracing against it or doing not so good. Um, spins are a good example of this. Everybody wants to know how to teach your horse to spin. You teach a horse to spin one step at a time. And almost any, not almost anybody, but you can do a fair amount of training on a horse, get to where you move his shoulders a little bit, so you get him to do this. And then you keep asking him, all of a sudden he's doing like this, and then you release the pressure. So what did you just train him to do? So, um, you know... The timing of the release is everything in horse training. And what makes someone a successful horse trainer is their ability to give a timely release. And remember, always go back and remind yourself and tell everyone you know that wants to get into horses that horses are very fast learning animals. When they're not learning fast, it is us that is doing something wrong. Now, there's always your horses out there that have been traumatized and had such terrible handling that it's going to take a long time to get some level of response from them and or maybe never but aside from that horses are very fast learning animals so uh keep it in the back of your mind 
Um, so the second thing, so the two most important factors then in the release are the timing and the amount of pressure that you use. So there's a scientific basis of training animals, all animals, humans included. Husbands included. Husbands included. I couldn't say it too loud because mine's back there. Um, and it says this. Whatever the animal is doing at this moment is what he's most motivated to do, right? So if you wish to change that behavior, you have to find the amount of pressure that motivates change. Find the amount of pressure that motivates change. This is true of raising children, right? You got a teenage kid, he gets, comes home from school with a bad grade or whatever. Well, what is the amount of pressure that's going to motivate change? I've never found it <laughs> in my son, but... Um, Actually, it wasn't until he turned 16, had his driver's license, that I could find something that was enough pressure to have an impression on him. Okay, give me the keys to your car. You're not driving until you fix that. So you have to find the amount of pressure that motivates change. If that same kid was a video freak, sitting computer nerd, sitting in his room all day on the video thing, and I said... <coughs> You came home with a bad grade, so you're going to have to stay in your room. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's not any pressure on him. It's not going to motivate any change in him. So finding the amount of pressure that motivates change is a critical factor in training horses as well. And um, I actually, uh, it was tw probably 20 years ago, I had a, a, an apprentice working with me, a young lady, uh, I had known for a long time and excellent hand with horses. And she, one day we were riding horses and she said, um, Julie, how do you know how much pressure to you, when you're asking, we were talking about asking a horse to lower his head. She said, how do you know how much pressure to use? <clears throat> and I thought for a few minutes and I said, I, and this is exactly what I said. I said, Aaron, I'm going to have to get back with you on that because I do not know how, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know how I know how much pressure to bear. Um, and I thought about it uh, for about a week and, and that was a long time ago. I, I've thought about it and talked about it a lot since, but um, so whatever the pressure it takes is what is the pressure it takes. And everybody with horses always wants to know how much pressure should I use? Um, I can never answer that question for you because, for one thing, every horse is different in the and how he responds to any pressure. Um, you got a really sensitive horse. You got that horse you just look at and he does this. You got a horse you could practically hit over there with a two by four and he wouldn't notice you were there. So there, those are big levels, big differences right there. Also, every situation is different, and how motivated is the horse in his behavior to begin with? So the horse's motivation is very important for you to know and be aware of. What the motivation is in his behavior and how motivated he is in his behavior. The more motivated he is in his behavior, the more pressure it's going to take to change his behavior. 
so um, I used the uh, somewhat crude example of, of breeding horses, live cover. How many of you ever seen or been a party to the breeding of horses, live cover? Okay, it's kind of violent. Not kind of. <laughs> Ain't no kind of about it. Um, but so, and usually they're expensive animals because certainly the stallion is. And if he's an expensive stallion, he's only being bred to expensive mares. Um, so we're handling these horses so that if something goes wrong, we can separate them before someone gets hurt. And also, sorry, I didn't mean to. Also, the people that are handling those horses are at great risk. And so, um, the, the reason why this relates to this concept of finding the amount of pressure that motivates change is I think that's a good example. At the moment, you've, you've teased these horses, you've sort of introduced them to each other, you see if the mare's interested. Stallion's getting more and more interested by the minute. And at some point, he's ready to do the deed. And so at that moment, he is about as highly motivated as a horse could be for anything, right? That is a highly, highly motivated animal. The pressure you would have to bring on that stallion at that moment to dissuade him from mounting that mare would be an intense amount of pressure. And so if you've been around it, you know that generally we've got chains in the mouth, um, sometimes multiple chains, uh, with something that, and you may never use it, um, but if something goes wrong and we have to stop the breeding, we have to be able to bring that much pressure to bear in order to motivate change. So we have this little problem we in the TV show, we call it a PP problem. So when we're working with a gelding and you're standing there talking on national TV and this horse all of a sudden he drops down and then you know what comes next is the are you the only young person in here? He's got headphones on. Um, our horses do masturbate. But anyway, so you don't want to be showing that on TV, right? We don't even want to show them like hanging out there. So all you have to do is, by the way, if this is there a problem, you stick your finger Fingernails work really well. And to around in their gum. And, and they go, <laughs> problem solved. Um, so anyway, um, finding the amount of pressure that motivates change is, is almost equal as important as timing. Um, so here's the way this works in training. Um, if let's say, let's let me think of a training scenario. Um, let's say the horse bites. Maybe he just nips. Um, but as I was talking about yesterday, uh, there's actually three stages of biting behavior: lipping, nip, nipping, and biting. They are all considered biting behavior. So lipping is when a horse puts his lips on you and just fiddles with his muzzle. Um, and most anyone who's been around horses has been lipped by a horse. And if you've allowed a horse to do that, then you've also been nipped by a horse because lipping is always followed by nipping. And the horse, all the horse is doing is trying to figure out your boundary. And if he can put his lips on you, you've got no boundary. And so in order for him to prove to you, you've got no boundary. Bink! <laughs> 
He usually flies backwards then because he knows he did something wrong. And most all of us, you don't have to be around horses very long before you figure this mistake out. So when he nips you, you, you know, hey, knock that off, spank him in some way. If, if, lipping, if nipping is not adequately punished, if enough pressure is not brought to bear on that horse that he understands that is unacceptable behavior, I will have zero tolerance of it. And I think you're a very bad horse when you act that way. Um, if I don't do that, and, and um, if I just go, oh, stop it. And then the next, you know, five minutes later, he does that again. And I go, stop it. What are we doing now? We're playing. Yeah, we're having a good old time. He, that's what male horses do, by the way. You turn out a bunch of male horses. What they do is spar. You know, do all that biting and then rearing up and, you know, that kind of stuff. They do that for fun. So now I end up with this horse that bites. And um, I can't tell you how many times people have come up to me at expos just like to wait in line for a long time to ask a question. And the question is, I've got this horse that bites. And no matter what I do, he still bites. No matter what you do, he still bites. There's only one answer to that question. Do you know what it is? You're not using enough pressure. You're not using enough pressure to motivate change. I don't need, I don't have to walk. That's the one thing in horse training I know for sure is the answer. I don't have to watch you. I don't have to hear any more of the story. You are not using enough pressure to motivate change. So how do you know what is the right amount of pressure? That's always the first thing people say. But how do you know immediately? And that is true. Okay, so if they come right back at you, still biting or nipping or whatever the bad thing is, um, clearly that wasn't enough pressure to motivate change. But how do you know in the moment that you apply the pressure if it was enough? Is the horse going to tell you that? Is he going to react? If he doesn't react, what does that tell you? <laughs> if you didn't even notice the correction, and uh, that happens a lot. <laughs> that happens a lot. Happens a lot in clinics. That horse isn't even noticing the like if there's not even a pause in the behavior. Um, it was certainly not enough pressure to motivate change. However, if let's say I'm dealing with a horse that won't stand still, or maybe he's even let's say he's rude or charging or you know kind of being fractious and trying to get out of here or whatever. Um, let's say he moved into my space and I'm like I'm we're going to straighten this out right now. And I start going after him with my rope, stomping my feet, doing like that. I know if I've used enough pressure, if the horse goes, right? That was a reaction that tells me, whoa, what was that about? Unless and until the horse has the reaction, what was that about? It was a waste of time. So you have to find the amount of pressure that the horse reacts to and start looking for a way out of the pressure. Now, that example that I was just giving was correcting aggressive behavior. So the correction was very aggressive. 
let's say I'm just training my horse a new cue. Let's say I'm just training him to lower his head when I'm riding. Um, I have a certain technique that I'm going to use, and I have videos on that and all of that. But I'm going to apply rhythmic pressure with the reins in timing with the horse's feet. How do I know how much pressure I need to use? Well, first I'm going to look at what bit's in his mouth, because if he's got a big old gnarly bit, we ain't going to be much pressure. Um, and But the main thing is I'm going to start applying, you know, what I think is enough pressure to make the horse immediately notice. And when he does, his head's going to come up, his ears are going to get stiff. And as soon as I get that reaction, I know that's enough pressure. I don't need more pressure than that. Because now what happens is he starts guessing for the way out of the pressure. So as soon as he notices the pressure... The next thing that happens is he starts searching for a way out of the pressure. So it, so at that point, I'm not increasing the pressure. At that point, I'm starting to look for the beginning of a response, the beginning of the head coming down, and that's when I'm giving the release. So uh, apply the pressure. Make sure it's enough pressure that the horse notices the pressure. If he notices the pressure, he will immediately start looking for a way out of the pressure. And then you have to understand in your mind that what is the response you're asking for and be realistic in that. If I'm teaching this horse the cue to lower his head for the very first time, I can't wait till his head's all the way down to the ground to give him the release. It's when it first starts down the release has to come. Remember, it's within a half a second. So um, timing and pressure are the two most important factors in training horses. If your timing is good and the pressure is good, the horse learns extremely rapidly, often on the first time. Horses, like people, some of us are smarter than others. Horses are that way too. Um, some horses are way more clever than other horses. They generally learn faster too. Um, unfortunately, they learn wrong things faster, too. So a lot of, you know, what we, you know, when I was taking horses in training when I was younger, um, and we still did that, um, you know, people bring problem horses. Every problem horse I ever trained was a very smart, very fast-learning horse that had learned bad things. So, um... What questions do you have? <clears throat> How do you reward for a whole class? You've gone in the show, you've done a pattern. You know, you're not going to be doing it within a half a second. Oh, this is an excellent question. Um, so the question was, and I'm going to alter it a little bit to make it be the question I wanted you to ask. <laughs> um the question is, I've got a show horse who I expect to perform for me, and you know, in a horse show, I can't give him a reward till we're out of the horse show. He's got to, he, you're dang right, he's got to have a work ethic and he's got to learn when to work. And when you say go to work and I need your best performance, he should be begging you to do his best performance. But how how do we get there? Um, first of all, getting back to what I was talking about earlier. 
horses or animals, because of their strongly gregarious behavior, their instinctively gregarious behavior, which is the herd nature of horses. They are so drawn to the herd that horses, horses work hard for acceptance. So when you, I was describing earlier in the arena today, you know, when you introduce a new horse into a herd and the existing horses chase them away, no matter how mean they are to him, no matter how hard they chase him away, he still comes back and begs for acceptance. He'll do anything. And he drops his head down, he stands on the periphery, he gets really contrite, he begs for acceptance. Um, to me... My relationship with my horses, or any horse, is, is all about capitalizing on that behavior. If my horse thinks of me as the ultimate herd leader of all horses, particularly my own horses, um, then he starts seeking out my acceptance. And if I notice that, if I acknowledge that, and if I, if I criticize him when I, when I think he is wrong, and I praise him when I think he's right, um, he starts really wanting to work for me because horses are so, this, this seeking out of acceptance into the herd is so deeply ingrained to him that when you can develop the kind of relationship with your horse where he thinks of you truly as that herd leader, I mean, we throw around this stuff all the time, be the leader, whatever, leader, you know. But if you really get to the point where this horse thinks of you as the ultimate herd leader, all he wants to do is please you and have your acceptance because that benefits him. He gets the good food. He gets the good stall. He gets my horses clamor over who's the best horse. Um, and in my black horse, he's highly insulted if anyone, anyone thinks it's not him. So um, we want to do everything that we can in our training to nurture that seeking out of acceptance. And that means feeling free to scold your horse when you do not approve of his behavior. Because if you never scold your horse or tell him when you disapprove, why would he keep trying to please you? So there has to be a really strong balance between um, praise and discipline, between you know praise and scolding. Now, you know, the aforementioned black horse, you, I mean, if you just look at him, if, he, if you even start to scold him, he, first of all, he's insulted because he never thought he did anything wrong. Um, but it doesn't take much of a scolding to hurt his feelings really badly because he's a horse that tries super, super hard in everything he does. Um, so as I'm training, just in general, every single day with my horses, um, they're going to work hard. Uh, we, we ride them pretty hard every day, uh, five days a week, not every day. Um, and I always save something hard, difficult for them to do for the end of my ride. Um, maybe today I decided I want to, um, uh, bone up on our rollback. So today I'm going to do some rollbacks. Uh, as I get towards the end of my ride, which they know how long I'm going to ride them because I'm on a strict schedule. And, uh, and I ride at 2 o'clock every day so that, you know, the horses know the schedule. 
So they know when I'm getting towards the end of my ride, and they know I'm only, and they know I'm going to ask them to do something hard, but they don't know what it is, right? So I might say, okay, well, maybe I'll just, okay, we're about two-thirds of the way through the ride. Mm, I'm going to ask you to spin. And you can see them actually going, could this be the last thing? <laughs> and so they'll start putting more effort into it. So they'll spin around there like, was that the last thing? No, it wasn't the last thing. Now we're going to do rollbacks. Um, but I always wait until I get the maximum effort from my horse on that hard thing. Then I get off and put them away. They'll never know what the hard thing's going to be. I don't even often think about it that far ahead of time. Um, but when I feel my horses put out maximum effort, I step off and put them away. If, if it's at the end of my ride, um, I, I had a horse I was training that was one-leaded, meaning that no matter what they did, they could not get this horse on the right lead. And she was difficult. I, I'm really good at that. I've never had a lot of trouble with that. And I was struggling with this horse. And I, I, I think if I recall, it was injury-related. It was She'd had an old injury that had just made her not want to use that lead anymore. And... Um, Anyway, so I'm this exercise I set up, my last resort exercise. And <clears throat> after two or three days of this exercise, I did it, and she picked up the right lead. <laughs> and we went about four or five strides, and I stopped her, and I got off her, and I just praised her, and I praised her, and I praised her, and I put her away. Next day, I get her out, set the exercise up. Um, not right away, but a couple times into it, she took the right lead. So I said, well, she she didn't learn as fast as I thought yesterday, so I'm going to do that again. So she took the right lead. I did four or five steps, got off her, praised her, put her away. That was a mistake. The second time was a mistake. You know why? Yeah, okay. All I got to do is four strides on the right lead. She puts me away. So, uh, so the third day I got out there, she immediately picked up the right lead. But when we got to the fourth stride, she planted her feet and was like, done. <laughs> um, so you've got you've to always acknowledge the try in your horse and praise it. And the best thing you can do is leave him alone. Let him rest. Give him comfort. Horses, I talked about yesterday, the two greatest motivating factors in a horse's life are safety and comfort. So anytime in our training we draw those things in, we do things that make a horse feel safe, and we give him comfort, um, it's going to help. So back to the horse show, um, you know, sometimes we have to train a good work ethic into a horse. And sometimes you have to work longer and harder than you want to. And you've got, I'm not going to ask you of that every day. And, I, you know, and I'm going to acknowledge when you give me what you can give me. And, and I have high expectations of you. But when you give it, I mean, what do you think I did the whole time between um, my last presentation and coming here? What do you think I did? Clean the stall, clean the water buckets, brushed him down, rubbed the sweat out of him. I had people helping me, but I had three horses, so I needed help. Um, I give that comfort to my horses, and they know that. They, I mean, 
my oranges get ridden and handled by my barn manager all the time. But when I, my horse is given to me, I need to get back. I need to be the one providing that comfort to him. So your your kind word, your acknowledgement of his effort is more means more than anything to him. Well, I hope so. But you know, everybody says when you're starting your horse on showing, make it fun. And I don't like to treat him like that. When you're starting a horse on showing, make it fun. They uh, want to get in the trailer and go to the next show. I, it's arguable that very many horses would, in, under any circumstances, think horse showing was fun. Although you have your horses that do like to perform. My horse likes to perform. He 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 does. He likes the, you know, he knows people are admiring him, and he likes that. Like they horses like to show off. That's called prideful behavior, and and they absolutely do. But um, yeah, so you acknowledge the try, scold them when they deserve it too, so that the scolding when they deserve it keeps them trying to get. That's what keeps them wanting your approval. If they have my approval twenty four seven carte blanche, yeah. why would he make any effort to please me? So that keeping in mind that acceptance that the one of the greatest fear in a horse's life is the fear of banishment from the herd. And you know this. It's not the horse that you take out of the pen. It's the horse you left behind in the pen that freaked out because he feels like he's being separated from the herd. Um, so horses feel banish fear banishment. Um, use that to your advantage. You know, right now I'm gonna. I don't, you're making me so mad. I'm gonna kick you out of here. I don't even want you anymore. And they'll be like, <gasps> and then they'll be trying to um, seek out your or seek out acceptance again. So use that stuff to your advantage. It works. And then. The kind of, by the way, the kind of relationship that you end up with is unbelievable. It's just, it's incredible. Um, so in every work that you do with this horse, make him, ask him at some point to try hard. And then praise him, acknowledge him, and put him away. Just remember that what your horse wants most of all, more than cookies, all we do by giving horses treats is ruin them. Uh, what he wants more is comfort. And your approval. But he really wants you to leave him alone. Horses, like, they want a total cessation of pressure. That means leave me alone. I just need to not have to think for a minute. And um, so we can do that in the moment um, by turning our back on him, just stepping away. Just let him be a horse for a minute, put his head down and, you know, relax. And so... All right, I think I'm, well, I got time for one more question. Yeah. Verbal reinforcement? Um, yes, not on purpose. I can't help myself. But my reinforcement, then you would mean to, to back up a cue or, or whatever. Um, I, so in terms of a verbal cue, I'm not sure if that's what you were asking. Both, okay? <clears throat> uh, yes, absolutely on the verbal cue. You know, I mean, within reason. Um, horses are easily voice trained. Very Because they're such fast learners, it's very easy for them to associate a sound with a, a response. So 
Um, you, easy to teach harsh voice commands in the round pin. You uh, just make sure that the commands you use are distinctly different sounds and then have some kind of reinforcement. And so you train a voice cue really fast to a horse by just, uh, let's say I'm in the round pen with a horse, and uh, uh, when I do, do voice commands in the round pen, I, I say walk, chop, canter. And um, so if, let's say I'm trying to get him to go into canter, I go canter, crack the whip, can't, and, but only say it once and then reinforce it. Go around the canter, and then uh, try it again. Canter, reinforce. Um, in short order, then um, you shouldn't need the reinforcement. So um, as far as using a voice, an audible cue for admonishment or as a reinforcement of the cue I gave, so... Um, then I do have an angry sound I make. I have to actually be in the process of doing it to make it. It was like, something like that. Um, and whatever the sound it is, all my dogs, are, both our dogs know it well because that means the horse is getting in trouble and they're right behind me. <laughs> um, but so I, I call it hissing, hissing and spitting in a horse. I think you should all have the capability of hissing and spitting at your horse. Um, so if I'm, let's say, this, this aforementioned unruly horse is crowding my space and, you know, getting really, this horse getting downright honorary, um, and I need to really back him up, so I'm really swinging my rope and I'm stomping my feet because horses communicate with their, their feet in that way. They stomp when they're mad. And I hiss and spit, you know, whatever. Do You can have your own sound. It can be whatever you want, but it should be an angry sound. Um, and again, it's not, it's never the hitting of the rope or the hitting with the whip. It's, it's the pressure of you being angry um, and not the actual physical pressure that's causing the response in the horse. So, All right, I, I'm out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap up. Thank you to Smooth Stride Riding Jeans for sponsoring this podcast. They make it possible for you to listen for free. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride.